Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 1. Well, as we have 20 minutes on the clock, we start a new book of the Bible, the book of 2 Samuel. Really, the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel is one story. It is the end of the era of the judges, the beginning of the era of the kings that runs from Israel's first king, Saul, who had no heirs, um, no, so no heirs, you know, like no descendants on the throne. And then David, the second king, and his family. Uh, was the king in Israel until the Babylonian captivity. Um, and then afterwards, though they had the right to claim the throne, no descendant of David sat on the throne. There was a king in Israel later on named Herod, but he was a false king, a puppet king by the conquering Romans, the occupiers. But the the era of the kings happens between King Saul and the Babylonian captivity. 1 Samuel starts with the prophet Samuel, the last of the judges, and in many ways the first of the Old Testament prophets, and then the anointing of King Saul, his rise and failure, the anointing of David to be king, and the book ends with the death of King Saul and begins with now David as he is going to begin his march towards the throne and his time as king. So verse 1 says, After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And remember, clothes torn, dust on your head would be symbols of mourning and of grief in their culture. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. And he said, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man and who had brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be at Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. And when he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what? And I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? And he said, I am an Amalekite, I answered. And then he said to me, stand by me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood beside him and kill him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. So I took the crown that was on his head and the band around his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nations of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. When David said to the young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? He said, I am the son of a foreigner and a Malachite, he answered. And David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called to one of his men and said, Go and strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you 
when you said, I have killed the Lord's anointed. All right. David's relationship with Saul was incredibly complex. It was incredibly complex. David loved Saul. Saul was actually David's father-in-law. David had married Saul's daughter. David's best friend uh, was Jonathan. And so Jonathan was being mourned probably more than Saul in many ways. Saul was also David's king. And we don't understand as Americans what it is to have a king. Um, nor, nor do I think we necessarily should in that sense. But, but they had a sense of king and country and duty. And so they were grieving the loss of their king. As messed up as he was, as imperfect as he was, there was still grief. I think a lot of us can relate to this. If you, if you have complicated relationships in your own family, um, that you know there is loss. Somebody dies who maybe there was estrangement. Um, maybe there was a lot of... Um, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. And yet when they die, you still had affection for them or you still had love for them or there was some something that, you know, you know, there's not quite closure. And then there's national things that happen. Sometimes somebody dies and you, you can say, I didn't agree with them on anything, but I can still recognize what they did for our country or for our community and uh, their service to our people, even if they were, you know, not, what I would have wanted. And so there's a lot of complexity that can happen in relationships. So David and his men spend the day in mourning for their king and for his son, Jonathan. And then they start to thinking about this. Wait a minute. You killed the king. You might remember the last time we were together that Saul had asked his armor bearer to kill him because he knew he was about to be captured, and he knew what, was, what would happen to a king who was captured uh, as an enemy. And so Saul had said to his armor bearer, you need, to, you need to kill me now so that I don't suffer the abuse and the torment and the mutilation before they kill me. They're going to kill me anyway, but I don't want my eyes put out or, or my fingers cut off or my intestines taken out while I am still alive. But his servant wouldn't do it. He said, I will not kill the king. I just can't. So Saul, according to the end of 1 Samuel, Saul fell on his own sword. Now, according to this Amalekite, he says, I came along and Saul was there. He had impaled himself, but he was still alive. And so I killed him at his own request. Now, David orders the Amalekite killed for killing the king. This is one of those ones like, what lessons are we supposed to learn from this? Okay, everything about this situation is messy. David is enraged. David is enraged that the Amalekite would take his hand against the king. But wasn't David about to go to battle? If you remember last time at the end of 1 Samuel, David was about to go to battle against Israel because he had put himself in a bad position. There's some hypocrisy here. David has a standard. He will not touch the king. That was not a standard shared by everyone else in Israel. So is he holding others to a standard that he's set for himself? Maybe. And, and, and so I'm, I'm willing to say 100% that David has some hypocrisy going on here. And I'm also a very open to the idea that David is imposing standards on others that maybe aren't wrong for himself, but he's imposing on others. The Amalekite, I don't know. Did he do the right thing? Or the, I, I can't even 
project into the situation because we're in dealing with cultural norms and what would have been right in a cultural situation so far in the past. I can't pass judgment, but I can read enough to say it seems like there's hypocrisy on David's part. And along with that hypocrisy is setting standards for yourself and then imposing them on others. So I think what we can take from it is just a, a warning in our own lives to not be so quick to pass judgment on others and to focus more on ourselves. That's what I would take from it. Now, David does lament concerning Saul and his son, Jonathan, and he orders the people of Judah to be taught this lament of the bow uh, written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain in the heights, in your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it in, not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. These are the Philistine strongholds. Mountains of Gilboa, may your have neither dew nor rain, may no showers fall on your terrace fields. For the, there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of knowledge of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. This is a funeral lament for Jonathan and Saul. Again, this is an incredibly dysfunctional relationship that Saul and David had with each other. Father-in-law, son-in-law king and future king. Incredibly broken relationships. And if you've ever been to a funeral where there is dysfunction, you know that a couple of things happen. There's a lot of lies told at funerals. Oh, he was the best guy ever. And you're sitting there going like, yeah, I could tell you some stories about the best guy ever, so-called. You know that at funerals, sometimes people paint a far prettier picture than is deserved of the person. Oh, they just did all these wonderful things and they were always the best. And I remember going to a funeral where I heard nothing but wonderful, wonderful things about the person during the service. And I'm, I'm officiating the service and I'm thinking, this is lies. Because before the funeral and after the funeral, I heard a very different account of this person. And the person being described in the funeral service is not the person that I heard described before and after. Now, somebody might say, well, they're just being nice. You don't speak ill of the dead. I, I, I get that. But there's a difference between being respectful and lying. Is this what's happening here? I think that there are, are things where you can separate the king in the office and Saul the person and also say that it was complex. That, that Saul did do some good things for Israel. And whenever somebody becomes a caricature, we speak about somebody as a caricature, as if they only do good things, only do bad things. That's ne almost never true. People are very complex. I, I think this actually may be incredibly honest that you know David did, uh, is talking about Saul. And the fact that it's David, the one who's saying these things, might make it all the more true and all the more powerful. 
Now, David has this line here, uh, Jonathan, your love was very wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Again, um, we have a tendency to impose our current situation onto ancient situations. Human beings have not understand, understood human sexuality the same from generation to generation. We have a tendency to think that prior to like 1960, all humanity thought of human sexuality in terms of Victorian era norms, or we have a tendency to think that prior to like colonization, uh, there was like European, like repressive sexuality. And then we spread our repressive sexuality uh, around to, uh, you know, the rest of the world and like, you know, uh, places like native, uh, you know, first people's tribes here in the Americas or, or uh, tribes in, in uh, uh, villages and cultures and nations in, in Asia and Africa were, were much more open about sexuality. I've read this kind of thing all over the place, depending on what the issue is. Uh, but they'll say that sort of thing, and that's how we tend to think of these things. That's actually not the case. Um, the, the, there are cultures that would look at how we view human sexuality in 2022 with how enlightened we think we have become, and they would say, why are you guys so repressed? Seriously, they, they would look at us as the repressed ones. They would say, you guys are living in the, the dark ages. So, so human sexuality and how it's viewed in different cultures and how it's thought of and talked about is in different times and different places hasn't looked the same. So the idea that John, he might describe Jonathan's love as being better than that of women is not necessarily a homosexual expression. Uh, to this day, in, in some uh, Middle Eastern cultures, men hold hands not in a sexual or romantic way, just as a, a, a totally platonic way. Um, and it's incredibly common. There, there are... Um, these sort of things happen and we project our understanding of them and how we view things and what for us is normal or comfortable versus what's normal or comfortable for someone else. I, I think I covered this in the past. Um, you can go back several episodes uh, in First Samuel. I'll, I'll say this. Um, I generally speaking do not subscribe to the idea that David and Jonathan uh, were in any sort of romantic relationship. Not because it would ruin my faith. In fact, I guarantee that there were people in the Bible who were in homosexual relationships. And I, and I think uh, if, if you want to say that David and Jonathan were, it's not going to like, you know, it's not going to ruin my day. That being said, I just don't. I think what's going on here is that people are trying uh, to, they're trying to shoehorn something in that I don't think is there. I think they're choosing to see um, a culture that viewed relationships between men and women much differently. And then they're trying to shoehorn our current situation into it. That's my take. If somebody has a different take, that's fine. Um, we're, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself if you think that there weren't, you know, there weren't people in the Bible, characters in the Bible, who knew gay people, that if there wasn't somebody in the Bible who was gay or who had same-sex attraction, you're kidding yourself. You know, the, the Apostle Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh, and he's not married. What if, he, what if his thorn in the flesh, what if his struggle was same-sex attraction? Think about that. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case, because I don't, I don't have proof of that. I'm just saying 
we'd be kidding ourselves to think that that wasn't the case. I'm also saying that David and Jonathan is something that people like to bring up. And to me, it's like, yeah, 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 sure, maybe. But I feel like what happens is like we really want it to be the case. So not we, but, you know, the people who want it. It's like you really want that without thinking, am I projecting 2022 onto ancient times? That's all I'm saying. So David is then anointed king. Uh, verse uh, 1, chapter 2, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to the towns of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up with his two wives, Ahoyanim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David also took the men who were with him, each with his family. And they settled in Hebron and its towns. And the men of Judah came to Hebron. And there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So Judah is throwing in its lot. Now there's politics here. Um, David is of the tribe of Judah. So they're basically saying, hey, David, you're our guy. And we know that Saul, uh, Samuel, the prophet, anointed you king while Saul was still king. And we know that one of the reasons Saul was trying to kill you is because he knew that too. So we're with you. So they come to him and they anoint him king over Judah. Now, when David was told that it was the men of Jabesh uh, Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to say to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor for what you have done. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. So what David is saying is a couple things here. He's, first of all, he's just saying outright, you did the right thing. Second, he is saying, I'm with you for doing that. So what he's saying is, you did a bold thing and you showed support for the dead king. You will have nothing to fear from me for doing that. Saul was my enemy, but I will not be your enemy. And he's saying, hey, I've just been anointed king by the people of Judah. So implication, if you want to join with me, just so you know, I am not your enemy. So there is some politics involved. You're the king and that's how it's going to be. But he's also saying, you did the right thing. I'm affirming that. And I want you to know that you will have no trouble from me for doing the right thing. Meanwhile, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him to Mahayim. And he had made him king uh, over Gilead, Asheri, and Jezreel, and over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. So you can see there's a power vacuum and there's now power struggles. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel and reigned for two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David, and the length of time that David was king over Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Manahiam and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zariah, and David's men went out and met with them at the pool of Gibeon, and one group sat on one side of the pool and one group sat on the other side. And Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, then let's do it, said Joab. So they stood up and counted off 12 men from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 men from David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they all fell down together. And so that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim, which means field of daggers or field of hostilities. It was stupid, pointless bloodshed pointless violence. 
So basically, they're trying to figure out ways to like figure out who's going to be the king. They've got a king over here, Ishbosheth, son of Saul. You got a king over here, David. They each have claims to the throne. Their representatives are trying to figure out ways to come to us. They're like, hey, let's get some of your guys, some of our guys. They'll fight, and they just stab each other, and they all die. Waste of life, pointless waste. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The sons of Zerai were there, Job, Abishai, and Ashael. And Ashael was fleet-footed as a wild gazelle, and he chased Abner, turning neither to the right or to the left, and he pursued him. And Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Ashael? It is, he answered. Then Abner said, Turn aside to the right or the left. Take on one of the other young men and strip him of his weapons. But Ashael would not stop chasing him. And again, Abner warned Ashael, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Ashael refused to give up his pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of the spear into Ashael's stomach, and the spear came out through his back, and he fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to that place where Ashael had fallen and died. So Abner is like saying, I don't want to kill you. He's more experienced. He's a better fighter. Ashael's young. He's fast. He will catch up to him. He's saying, let me alone. He has no choice. He kills him. Everyone stops and sees what happened. Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. As the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. And the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner and they formed themselves into a group and took their stand there on the top of the hill. And Abner called out to Joab and said, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing your fellow Israelites? Now he's speaking sense here. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the troops came to a halt and no longer pursued Israel and they did not fight anymore. And all that night, Abner and his men marched through uh, Arabah and they crossed the Jordan and continued through the morning hours and came to Manaheim. And then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Beside Ashahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. And David had, David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. And they took Ashahel and buried him in his father's tomb in Bethlehem. And then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived, arrived at Hebron by daybreak. And the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. Nothing good comes from this. And this all happens because of the dysfunction and the sin of Saul. And you might look around your world and say, why is there this mess? Why is there this brokenness? And there's a possibility that it's from a sin or sins of somebody who's not even alive anymore. But that brokenness has extended and has continued. But here's the good news, that Jesus does a healing work, that Jesus works in the brokenness of people, that Jesus heals broken families. I believe that fully. I've seen it played out, and in faith, I believe it will still be played out in my own life and in my own extended family. The good news of Jesus is not just in our own hearts, but it's in the world around us. And I'm so thankful that we have Jesus working in our world. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. I know this one went a little long, but I appreciate your time with us. New episodes are released on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Video versions are available on our Facebook page. You can join us on Sunday mornings for church services online and in person at 10.30 a.m. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information about our weekly gatherings. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill, and I want to say thank you for joining us for another episode, and we'll see you again next time for the 20-Minute Bible Study.